This is Blood Bank, a podcast where hospital workers share a story from an experience in medicine that has stayed with them, and then they tell us why. I'm Amanda Rubano, and I'm a medical student at the University of Rochester. Today, we're going to hear a story from Dr. Larry Gutmacher about how his experience as a husband of someone who had a serious illness changed him as a doctor. Dr. Gutmacher is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Medical Humanities at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. Hi, Dr. Gutmacher. Good afternoon, Amanda. Can you tell us why you chose this story? Well, as, as you mentioned, uh, in a former life, I ran a medical humanities selective where, uh, and this was clearly triggered by my own experiences, I asked physicians who had been through significant medical uh, illnesses or traumas to talk about their own experience. What was striking was how universal the response was that all agreed that they were fundamentally different doctors after having been patients than they were before. This is Dr. Gutmacher sharing with us a moment from his past. Well, go back to those experiences. Um, and thankfully, this first is now a quarter century past. But uh, my wife um, had what was seemingly a fairly trivial issue that her right leg was swollen, her left leg was not. And she went to her internist, um, Howard Beckman. And Howard worked it up when I think many might have ignored it because he knew that knew Terry well and knew that she was somebody who clearly minimized her troubles. And uh, the denouement was on a Friday evening. It was late Friday. And we are um, at Highland Hospital where Terry is going to undergo a biopsy. Howard went in the surgery um, and came out and joined us. And the news was awful that um, she had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And Howard sat with us. He cried with us. He assured us that he was going to be there for the long haul and that he was going to see this through. He didn't sugarcoat. He, he was quite straightforward about what we were going to be facing. And this incredibly human response from him was so, so powerful in terms of the commitment uh, that he offered. And that began a long and in many ways awful year, year and a half, the low point being uh, Terry becoming septic and ending up uh, for three weeks on a ventilator. And then ultimately, um, after a couple of rounds of failed chemo, uh, a very successful bone marrow transplant, and we're now you know, as I said, 20, 25 years out from this thing, and uh, she is doing remarkably well. So aside from sort of the miracles of modern medicine, it, it also so taught me about what really good doctoring could be and what really good medical care could be. You know, the, in those days, a bone marrow meant uh, three weeks to a month of inpatient care in a room you didn't leave. Um, and the, the care on that unit was just extraordinary. Uh, there was a 
head nurse that had been there for years and that her staff were so devoted to her and the care that they were offering that, you know, nobody had left in the preceding three years. It was incredibly stable. They were unbelievably caring. They were there for Terry. They were there for me. This horrible procedure she was undergoing, they, they maintained a kind of realistic optimism that uh, really got us both through it. One of my other former lives, I used to be, uh, the University of Rochester has an advisory dean system. And so I would be given a quarter of each class as they entered and follow them through their time. And I would routinely say to them that my fond hope um, was that at some point during medical school that they would become seriously ill. Uh, It would be nice if they recovered, but that, you know, I would argue that they would emerge as much better doctors uh, as a function of having been patients. Um, I wish there was some way all of us could do this. It was a brief experiment at UCLA, and I don't know why it stopped, I'm assuming, finances, where they would admit all medical students for three days to an inpatient unit um, and you know make them stay in the bed and eat hospital food and um, deal with the bedpan and all the joys of patienthood. Man, I would guess that that would be uh, really an eye-opening experience uh, for students and one we ought to think about how we could recapture. I have to wonder what you think made you respond so powerfully to Terry's experience. Because I saw this model of what I thought doctoring ought to be. So first of all, he was competent. Let's let's start that, you know, it's, it's really nice that doctors know what they're doing. And he clearly did. Um, he also clearly knew his patient. And, you know, something that my guess is he might have ignored in somebody else he paid attention to with her. Um, and then just the raw caring that was so obvious and his clear commitment to her and, and to us. Uh, was just moving and a model in my mind of what, you know, care ought to ideally be. I think in medical school, we are taught that crying and hand-holding, there's a level, there's a line that we cross, but it seems like that very moment where he cried was in fact the moment where you felt this undeniable connection to him as your caretaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he was incredibly genuine. And, and um, it's an interesting process. I want to step back a little. So I had an unusual background in that I did most of college night school and was uh, 10 years getting a bachelor's and worked in psych hospitals uh, throughout that time. And it was a weird period in the history of American psychiatry. And so without a bachelor's degree, I'm running a treatment team and doing group and individual and family therapy. Um, And I got to medical school and it changed me in a lot of ways. There was some that was good. I became able to develop a differential diagnosis and put together a treatment plan and think in an ordered fashion. And I certainly picked up lots of knowledge. Um, But I also stopped trusting my gut. And I've often wondered about why that was and how this happens. And I think a lot of it is, you know, the, the whole process of medical education, you know, you come in, you're violating all kinds of taboos. You're 
cutting up dead people. You are asking people your parents' age about their sex lives. You're doing all kinds of strange things that, um, you know, nobody else does. And you're exposed to people dying. And most medical students have had very limited exposure, thankfully, to that prior. You're exposed to incredible pain. You cause pain. Um, I had a classmate who simply lovely man, the guy who we all would want to have named, we would have wanted for our doctor. And he just couldn't get himself to even start IVs because it was going to hurt a patient. He couldn't get himself to do it. Um, so so we're, we're doing all these things that civilians don't do and would be horrified, you know, if he were to do this in any other setting. And so how do you come to terms with that? And I think Part of it in the beginning is that you sort of wall yourself off. You do this because you got to do it because it's a part of the trade, but you don't acknowledge to yourself how hard and how painful that is and the raw emotion that's out there. And for a while that works. Now, the good news is eventually, hopefully, you get it back. So, you know, I relearned eventually uh, the importance of paying attention to my gut. But the whole initiation process and the whole process of the last year and a half, if we look at at the horrors of of COVID, if we look at the amount of work people have had to do, the stress everybody's been under, the dying patients, and the, you know, ever-increasing rates of physician burnout, well, you know, the obvious answer to me is we need to get better taking care of ourselves. Part of taking care of ourselves is acknowledging and experiencing, allowing ourselves to really experience the emotions that we have to deal with. What do you think is the lesson here for people listening? I think, you know, for me for the healthcare workers that it's okay and necessary to experience the emotions and you're going to be a much better doctor and your patients are going to value you all the more if you are able to do this. You talked about crying with patients and, and um, this is something I routinely do. No. Does it happen on occasion? Yes. And there's nothing horrible about that. Now, are there boundaries that are appropriate? Yeah, I would strongly suggest that nobody has sex with their patients. Um, and, and some others that are less obvious, but yeah, the boundaries are important. But I think you've got to make a distinction between boundary violations and boundary crossings. And there's some boundary crossings that are quite appropriate and um are good both for us and for our patients. What is one that you can think of looking back in your career you wish you executed? Being an attending, I had a psychiatrist patient who committed suicide. It's the only patient I was working with individually where this happened. Um, and I did reach out to the family to some extent. I should have reached out more side detour, but you know, it was also, I I was incredibly shaken by this. It was awful experience. Um, 
my mentor at that point uh, was John Romano, who was the founding chair of our department. I immediately went to him, and John could not have been any more supportive or any more wonderful or more um, encouraging to me. I was very shaken. As, you know, Do I know what I'm doing, and what does this say about me and my chosen career, and how responsible am I? And John didn't sugarcoat, and we looked back over what had happened. Um, John was incredibly helpful to me. So, you know, I, I think for me, what he was this wonderful mentor. And at times of crisis, I think the other part of this message is that we need to be there for one another. To the support that he offered me was just incredibly important. I think what I've learned here is that one, this field is hard. Two, giving bad news is harder, but feeling the weight and the pain of that news with your patient is hardest of all because you're the one implicating them with it. In a sense, you're causing the pain because you're giving the news. Of course, it's in the hope of preventing them from further damage, but there's something to be said for what it means to be there and to sit through that pain with them. And to be as supportive as possible, because if you're not, you risk missing a moment when someone needs you most. Not much to say besides amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, I appreciate your time enormously. I think, you know, if this conversation, no one listens to it, I'm grateful that it happened. Um, <laughs> And um, for those that did, if you're out there, I hope that you took something away as well. This was Dr. Guttmacher sharing a story with us from his past. I'm Amanda Rubano, and you're listening to Blood Bank.